When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 19th, 2017. On this week's show, the New York Times' Kevin Draper will join us to discuss the upcoming fight between boxer Floyd Mayweather and mixed martial artist Conor McGregor, which will make a lot of people a lot of money and seem certain to disappoint those among us who spend the money to watch it on pay-per-view. We'll also be joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, He'll chat with us about the various theories behind why baseball players are hitting more home runs than ever before. And finally, David Gessner will be here to talk about his memoir, Ultimate Glory, Frisbee, Obsession, and My Wild Youth. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey, Stefan. Hey, still living my wild youth over here. What was the subtitle of Word, Word Freak? Heartbreak, triumph, genius, and obsession in the world of competitive Scrabble players. You just needed to get Frisbee in there, and you would have... Uh, been good. You, you know what's hard to say? New yeah. York Times is... New York Times is... New York Times is... New York Times is... New York Times is... Uh, Kevin Draper is in the studio with us. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? I'm good. The New York Times is Kevin Draper. And you wrote a story uh, last week about the McGregor-Mayweather fight... Um, It's going to happen a little more than two months from now on August 26th. They are scheduled to enter a ring to answer one of the least difficult questions in sports, which is who would win a fight between one of the greatest boxers of all time and a guy who is not a professional boxer? No matter, this will be one of the highest grossing sporting events of all time, as many of our fellow humans will want to pay to see the undefeated 40-year-old Mayweather come out of retirement to face off against the 28-year-old UFC lightweight champion, Conor McGregor. In your piece, uh, Kevin, you quoted a former executive from HBO who estimated that the fight could bring in around $400 million from pay-per-view buys and tickets and advertisers and various other revenue streams. So the obvious answer to why this fight is going to happen is 
that it's going to bring in around $400 million from all that stuff I just mentioned. But there have been so many fights in the history of boxing that we would have thought were no-brainers because of the amount of money that they would bring in. You know, Mayweather-Pacquiao took six years for it to happen. And when it finally did, both guys were past their prime. So why does it, you know, in, in this case, this fight is happening in two months. Like, why is this happening and why is it happening so soon? Well, I mean, yeah, the, the why is it happening is, I think, purely a money thing that uh, Floyd Mayweather loves money. He All he does is tweet and Instagram about the uh, huge gambling wins he has, uh, somehow never posts his gambling losses, shockingly. Um, and so the why is the money. The the why it's happening now, I think, is a little bit harder to answer. Um, Floyd Mayweather is kind of known as like a, he's more in, way more involved in negotiations for fights than any other boxer. Pretty much everyone just kind of like they send their promoter or their manager out there uh, and and they deal with it. And then we have a date and we have a fight. Uh, he has his own promotions company that started in like 10 years ago where right, he does right. his own and negotiating. And he's, he's, got, he's got these, you know, guys that people like talk about behind the scenes that like sort of move and shake and do things. Um, And so it's kind of hard to answer that question without getting him to answer why did he decide now to do it versus a year ago, or why didn't he decide to do it a year ago? Uh, He's sort of the one driving everything, and uh, Floyd Mayweather does not really talk to reporters. So McGregor, Stefan, was desperate to have this fight, to make way more money than he could possibly make in UFC, and to you know, he's already a crossover star, but to become yet more famous. And, you know, Kevin was right that Mayweather was the one who prevented the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight from happening. He seems to like to, you know, toy with everyone and have the whole boxing world on a string. Well, he also likes to make sure that he's in an advantageous position when the fight actually happens. Yeah. And in this case, <laughs> I, it's hard for him not to be in an advantageous position, except for the fact that he's 40. Um but this has been building for a long time, Kevin. I mean, uh, McGregor started talking about this more than or almost two years ago when he was really not the huge star that he is now. And it almost seems like it was this campaign to build up to this. And of course, because this is boxing and because it is martial arts, you can't put it past any of these people that this has been something that they have been planning, manipulating the public to get to over time. Right. I think I think if, if, you know, McGregor had lost twice in the last two years, this thing wouldn't be happening because he wouldn't be sort of the worldwide sensation that he's become. But he's maybe the first UFC fighter to really fully cross over into both, I think, mainstream sports, but also just sort of mainstream pop culture generally. And he's kind of this gregarious showman that uh, says outlandish quotes and buys $5,000 suits and struts around in them. Um, and so That doesn't I, sound like that expensive of a suit. Maybe uh, like, let's, yeah. say, let's say $50,000 suits. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, we'll go with $50,000. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but he he's become sort of this thing that could make this money and does make it at least a, you know, attractive windfall for Floyd Mayweather in a way that two years ago, this just would not have been. Yeah, that's interesting to think about because there are just so few boxers now that really move the needle in terms of, you know, popularity. You had the Ward-Kovalev fight over the weekend that people who care about boxing, if you know any of them, will tell you was like this huge event, you know, this rematch. And I certainly didn't watch it, and um, I guess there was a low blow 
involved. But it's not like any of those guys, if you match them up with Floyd Mayweather, are going to set the kind of pay-per-view numbers that a McGregor fight will. And McGregor is like someone who is plausibly, like he's a guy who fights people. And so you can like put him in the ring and have it not be totally ridiculous. Right. It does, it, it's not even a, a question of whether it's ridiculous or not because it's something that we're curious about. How would a mixed martial artist in the era of UFC uh, do against an established boxer? We want to know something like that. Of course, I think there was a mixed martial artist who died over the weekend in a boxing match. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that the public is going to be intrigued by. And there's enough tilting on McGregor's side. He's younger He's fast. He's been successful. Mayweather, you could say, is older. He has not fought a ton. He's past his prime. So there's enough ways for the public to look at this and go, oh, that's going to be weird and curious, and maybe there'll be an upset. Maybe something strange will happen in the ring. But ultimately, it comes back to the business equation. I mean, this is purely about how can we build up to sell this. And let's not also minimize the role of Dana White, the head of UFC, in making this happen. Correct, Kevin? Yeah, I think besides Mayweather getting his payday, this this fight is kind of a, a big boon for UFC because they've fought for years to, and I think probably diehard UFC people would uh, uh, disagree with this, but they have been, uh, you know, not as popular in the imagination of American culture as, you know, boxing is the big fighting sport, the big fighting event, and UFC is just not. And this sort of starts to position McGregor as the only challenger left for Mayweather or an equal to Mayweather, and therefore UFC as an equal to boxing as this premier fighting sport. And so Dana White as now, I think, a minority owner of UFC since they've been bought out, but still a minority owner and president of UFC and sort of the face of it more than any individual fighter. Uh, he and kind of his brand and the UFC's brand, I think, is really is really burnished by uh, this fight. Well, it's kind of remarkable, too. I mean, McGregor, when did he fight his first fight? Like less than 10 years ago? How long has he been an established star? Less than three years? Has he ever boxed? He's, Seriously? He's not boxed professionally. He, right. he boxed as an amateur, but right. he is not as a professional. Um, and so, I mean, there's some people that think that this fight, you know, the, the only thing that could possibly derail it, which the money likely means this won't happen, but that uh, this fight needs to get sanctioned still. And some people think, I mean, you're essentially sanctioning an amateur boxer against one of the greatest boxers of all time. And that has, you know, serious health ramifications. The thing that I find fascinating, particularly about Mayweather is that invariably whenever he fights, people end up disappointed because he's a defensive genius. The entire mission um, when he gets in the ring is to av- for him to avoid anything interesting happening. And it's the larger story then is how if he's the biggest star in your sport, then you know what he's really, really good at is getting people to hate him by doing stupid things and like just talking shit or, you know, whatever he does. Um, He is also just extremely hateable due to his multiple domestic uh, violence issues. Uh, I should probably just say convictions rather than just issues. But um, when the end product ends up being something that is not particularly fun to look at, and even when he's, you know, having a legitimate boxing match and then you put him in the ring with someone that he'll be able to toy with, 
you're just have a recipe for you know them these two guys walking away th- with a lot of money and everybody else who gives them money just coming away looking like a chump well as opposed to countless you know how many countless other fights in the history of combat sports particularly boxing the 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 commercial imperatives here i think were laid bare by what I read in a Yahoo piece, which quoted the executive director of the Nevada Athletic Commission about approving this fight. And he said that he watched sparring video of McGregor last week. He had said he had improved from six months ago. Here's what he said. He said, he's a world-class striker and there are similar skills to boxing. He started kickboxing at the age of 12. And he had improved from six months ago. Therefore, it's totally fine. <laughs> Exponential. <laughs> and your growth can be exponential when you go from not being a professional <laughs> right. fighter to actually training in, in boxing uh, seriously for the first time in your life. Now is the uh, time in the segment where I'm going to be intellectually honest and say, I'm probably just going to I'm probably going to watch this thing because I'm a huge idiot. That's not to say that I'm going to pay to watch this thing. But there is just something <laughs> about this matchup and just. I guess there are a lot of different reasons that people can watch it. I want to watch it just to see how stupid it will be. But also just, I guess, to be completely honest, and like the one half of 1% chance that something like actually does happen that will, you know, fall in the category of sports things. Yes, you do not want to miss if McGregor does something that we don't expect him to do. Well, and that's what I think is kind of interesting about this is you talked about the the Pacquiao Mayweather fight that came years after everyone thought it should have happened and, and most people thought it was a disappointment. It wasn't that exciting. Uh, but there's, there are people that thought that fight would be good. I have not read anyone that is not connected to Conor McGregor that actually thinks this is going to be either a competitive fight or, uh, you know, like a, a high-level showcasing uh, of boxing. And so it's this uh, weird thing where it is going to draw these millions of eyeballs, but – It is at least this intellectually honest thing that I don't think anyone can say that they got duped by thinking this is going to be some great thing. They know what they're paying for. They are paying for this spectacle and this kind of insane thing not to see sports played at a championship level. Kevin Draper is a sports business reporter for The New York Times, I believe. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the question of why Major League hitters are pounding home runs at an astronomical rate, a heads up about this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members. In that segment, Kevin Draper will be back with us to talk about LeBron James's momentous decision to shave his head and what it portends for the NBA and men with receding hairlines. If you want to hear that, please join Slate Plus. It's just $49 a year. You'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week and you will be supporting our show. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. As of the midpoint of last week, Major League hitters had socked 2,395 home runs, which is a lot of home runs. 
If the current pace continues, they would hit more than 6,000 this year, which would smash the record of 5,693. That was set in the midst of the steroids era in 2000, four years before the major leagues implemented mandatory drug testing. As recently as 2014, everyone in Major League Baseball hit a total of just 4,186 home runs. So what's going on here? A bunch of writers and statistical analysts have theorized that we're in the midst of something called the airball revolution, in which players have figured out that fly balls are more valuable than grounders and have adjusted their swings so they have a greater propensity to hit fly balls. In a piece published in The Ringer last week, Ben Lindbergh and Mitchell Lickman put forward a different theory. That theory is that the ball is juiced. Joining us now to discuss is Ben Lenberg, who writes for The Ringer and is the host of many podcasts, among them Effectively Wild and The Ringer MLB Show. And I didn't even mention the one about video games. <laughs> What's up, Ben? Hey, guys. Good to be here. Uh, before we get into the possible mechanisms that have caused this home run spike, I'd like you to put into context just how huge this spike is when you look across baseball history. And the surprising thing, given how many home runs are being hit across the league, is that there's just one player, the Yankees' Aaron Judge, who's on pace to hit more than 50. So rather than seeing a bunch of Maguires and Sosas and Bonses, um, we're looking at something more akin to a rising tide lifting all boats, except a baseball version of that metaphor. So. <laughs> a rising stirrup lifting all socks, right. perhaps? So, yeah, it's a very egalitarian distribution of dingers, right? It's No one's setting any records or on a record pace right now. It's just that just about everyone hits 20 home runs, at least right now. Even powerless middle infielders seem to hit 20 home runs. So that seems to jibe with the idea that maybe there's something going on with the ball because there is a sort of home run sweet spot that you see with fly balls where when fly balls go a certain distance, they become more likely to turn into home runs. And so if you're a hitter who wasn't able to reach that distance before – and suddenly you can because the ball is helping the ball is different in some way and and your hit your batted balls are carrying a little bit farther than they used to then maybe you're reaching that sweet spot whereas if you are Aaron Judge say now you're hitting the ball 495 feet instead of 470 feet maybe it's a home run either way so it seems as if whatever is going on has affected everyone but maybe has benefited the lower class of home run hitter a little more than the elite slugger and going from 4,186 home runs to potentially 6,000 in three years, that's unprecedented in the history of the major leagues? Yes, completely. This is not only the highest home run rate ever by quite a bit at this point, but also the fastest rise in home run rate ever over, say, a, a three-year period. And even if you look back at the changeover from the dead ball to the live ball, which maybe we'll get into in a, in a minute or two, and the end of World War II when all the players came back from overseas, or the late 70s when MLB changed baseball suppliers, there are all these inflection points in baseball history when the home run rate rose suddenly, but it has never risen as suddenly and dramatically as it has over the last two plus seasons. MLB has denied that they did anything dramatic to change the baseball, um, which has led the sabermetrics community to perform some really interesting analysis on other factors that might have changed exit velocity of the ball coming off the bat, the way players are swinging, swinging at a higher angle, this launch angle conversation. But tell us what you and Mitchell Lickman decided to do to try to determine whether there was some impact um, from the ball. 
Right. So we've looked at this statistically in a number of ways, and that suggested that there might be something going on with the ball, but you never know for sure until you actually test the ball, which unfortunately is difficult and time-consuming and expensive to procure official Major League Baseballs and have have them tested, which involves sending them to a lab. There are only a couple places in the country that are capable of testing baseballs this way, and they have to be fired out of a cannon at 120 miles per hour at a cylinder, and then the lab sees how much they rebound off that cylinder and and can tell something about the interior construction of the ball. And so the differences that Mitchell found or that the lab that he sent the balls to be tested at found is we saw that the circumference of the ball was slightly smaller. We saw that the seams were slightly lower. And we saw that the coefficient of restitution, the core, which is just a fancy sciencey way of saying how bouncy the balls are, that had changed too. So the balls had become bouncier. And so if you look at any one of those changes in isolation, it doesn't look like that big an effect. And it's certainly not in terms of inches or anything like that. You couldn't even detect these differences if you were holding the balls or, or you know, looking at them. But it turns out that you only need small differences for big changes to happen because if you increase this core, the coefficient of restitution, the ball leaves the bat much faster than it would otherwise. And if you lower the seams, then the ball travels much farther. You hit it exactly the same way and it just keeps carrying because there's less air resistance, which also goes for the size, the circumference of the ball. And so if you put together all of those differences that we found, they do come close to accounting for at least that initial rise in home run rate in 2015. And yeah, I think the the number you guys uh, used in in the in the in the piece is that the balls were traveling seven point one feet farther, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot, yeah. right? And that would account for warning track fly balls turning into home runs. Right. Yeah, there are thousands of batted balls every year. So if they go a little bit farther and the effects might even be a bit more pronounced at higher exit velocities that are more likely to lead to home runs. So it doesn't take all that much to produce this huge spike that we've never seen in the history of baseball before. So due to your persistent requests, Major League Baseball released a report on its own testing that it had done on the alleged differences between baseballs in the years that you're looking at. And according to their testing, there wasn't any change. Does that indicate that they're being dishonest? Does it indicate that there are different ways to look at the same sets of baseballs and just come up with slightly different answers? Yeah, I think more the latter than the former. And I think there are different ways you can interpret their results. And they still haven't released this report publicly. They provided it to me after some badgering. But Essentially, they said that there's no significant difference in the construction of the balls or that the balls are comparable to what they were in the past. And and they are comparable. They're very close. But I think that if you look at even the results presented in their report, there are some slight differences. And maybe they considered those not so significant that they could account for these effects. But I think if you dig a little deeper and you look at them not in isolation, but in combination, they can. And the legal limits for a baseball are so wide, you know, the the range of coefficient of restitution that is allowed in a legal regulation baseball, even according to Major League Baseball's own testing facility, by their own admission, 
a ball at the lower end of the range of what's allowable for a Major League Baseball could travel 49 feet fewer than or 49 feet less than a ball at the upper end. And they could both be legal baseballs, but one could go way over the fence and one could be an easy out in the outfield. And I don't want us to minimize the other factors that have gone into this because there are coaching styles have completely changed in some cases. Batters are overhauling their swings Mm -hmm. to create a higher launch angle, directing the bat upward at a a higher angle. The, The belief that fly balls are more valuable than ground balls or even line drives is certainly something that is having an effect on how players are playing the game and on how some coaches are coaching the game. And it's not just anecdotal, right? There's statistical evidence that the average launch angle for a major league swing has increased in the last couple of years. Yes, slightly. And this is not a new idea. You can go back and find clips of Ted Williams talking about how you should swing at a slightly elevated angle because the pitch is coming in at a slightly downward angle because of the pitcher's height and the mound and gravity and physics. And so to meet the ball square and flush, you have to swing with a slight uppercut. But that idea has really caught on in the last few years. And so the question is, is that driving the increase in home run rate or is that a response in some way to the increase Mm -hmm. in home run rate? And so I tend to think that it is more of a response and that perhaps there was some change in the baseball. There was some change in the conditions in 2015 or so that made fly balls more valuable, that rewarded hitters more richly when they elevated the ball. And hitters noticed that and have started aiming up. So the percentage of runs scored in major league games that are due to home runs is also at a record high, right, Ben? Yeah, that's right. I think it's well over 40% last time I looked. And strikeouts are um, at record highs. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, this is obviously more of a subjective question and different people will have different answers. But the fact that baseball just seems more and more home run focused and strikeout focused and it's three true outcomes, the home run, the strikeout, and the walk is aesthetically kind of troubling for the sport, I think, um, whether it's a cause or whether it's an effect of players that are you know actively trying to hit more home runs now mm-hmm. than ever before. Um, you're going to get a game that ends up looking more kind of, you know, <laughs> more like strikeouts and home runs and nothing right. And between. lasting longer, by the way, because all three of those tend to prolong the length of games. And so, you know, do you think that um, the powers that be in the sport should be concerned about this? And is there something that, um, you know, pitchers can do? Is there something that managers can do? Is there something that, um, the league office can do to, you know, if if this is a concerning trend to, um, you know, get the game more into balance. Yeah, I think this is the 12th consecutive season that there's been an increase in strikeout rate. So while it does seem to be tied to the home runs, it's probably not directly related. I think strikeouts had increased even before we saw this massive home run surge. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It's pitcher usage and guys coming out of the bullpen for two batters at a time and throwing as hard as they possibly can and velocity being up and lots of reasons for it. But yes, we're definitely seeing a higher percentage of all plate appearances. I think it's 
over a third now end without a ball in play. And so if you like seeing guys run around and you like seeing defensive plays, there's less of that in baseball than there ever has been before. And I don't know whether this bothers the typical fan. I think it's something that there's been a lot of hand-wringing about you know, among people who follow the game very closely and are looking at leaderboards all day and seeing these percentages creep up. I don't know whether if you plop down a fan from the 80s or 90s and had them watch baseball in 2017, whether that would stick out immediately and whether that would bother the person, because I think people do like scoring and they like home runs. And compared to where we were a few years ago, when scoring was at its lowest level since the mid 70s, and everyone was concerned about how baseball was going to get scoring back and does baseball have to do something different? And that's one of the reasons why there has been a conspiracy theory about the ball and home runs, because it seems almost overly convenient that scoring came back just as everyone was worried about this. But I think baseball would probably choose this version of baseball over the version we had a few years ago. But I would think there is a happy medium. All right, before we let you go, Ben, I have to ask you about the dead ball era, which you referenced earlier, and what caused the change to the live ball era. And you have a wonderful anecdote in your piece that you pulled from a newsletter written by Craig Wright, a baseball historian and sabermetrician. And he pins the change from the dead to live ball era on World War I and an American wool shortage. Prices (laughs) went up for American wool. So the company that made Major League Baseball's then reach – decided to start importing Australian wool for the yarn that goes inside a baseball and the Australian wool because, of course, it's from the merino sheep. Mm -hmm. Sheep (laughs) sheep issues are huge. Um, Was springier than the American wool. This is fascinating. And not only that, you, uh, Craig Wright writes and you and you include in the piece that the response to this was almost identical to what's going on in baseball right now. Yes, it was a worldwide wool shortage. Let's not sell the wool shortage of of 1919 short. That sounds like a book, actually. So usually we talk about 1920 as this dividing line between the dead ball era when no one hit the ball over the fence, everyone was bunting and slapping the ball and trying to hit for a high average, and the live ball era when Babe Ruth came along and everyone suddenly started hitting home runs. And Craig showed that it wasn't really this clean demarcation between dead ball and live ball, but it was more of a three-year process. So yes, in 1919, there was this change in the wool supply, and this new version of wool inside the ball was springier and tougher. And so offense rose in 1919, especially as the season wore on and those new baseballs began to be introduced into the supply. Then in 1920, offense was up again because there was another change. That was the year that the spitball was out outlawed and doctoring pitches was outlawed except for guys who were grandfathered in and so not only did that change happen but major league baseball began replacing baseballs during games much more frequently and so in the past they would just play with the same baseball and it would get knocked around and dirty and lumpy and they would never replace it in 1920 they started replacing it so you had these baseballs in better condition and brighter and easier to see offense increases again and then it seemed like the combination of those two changes in 1920 hitters suddenly realize we're not in the dead ball era anymore and we can actually hit these balls over the fence and so led 
by Babe Ruth, there was this power revolution of swinging for the fences and trying to hit home runs. And so it does really seem to mirror what's going on now almost a century later where you have this change in the baseball, a change in the conditions, and then gradually the hitters realize that there's been this change and they adjust accordingly. And then you see an additional change. So it does just go to show that nothing in baseball is ever really new and the history goes back so far that you can almost always find some precedent for whatever the new supposedly innovative thing that's going on today is. Ben Lindbergh is a writer for The Ringer and he also is the host of the Effectively Wild uh, podcast and The Ringer MLB show. And your book is out in paperback. That's right. Yeah. The only rules it has to work. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From its beginnings in the 1960s and 70s, Ultimate Frisbee had an image problem, starting with its name. You almost couldn't have come up with worse, David Gessner writes in his new memoir, Ultimate Glory, Frisbee Obsession, and My Wild Youth. An adjective followed by a silly sounding word like fabulous foosball, to which I would say at least Ultimate Frisbee isn't alliterative. David Gessner is the chair of the creative writing department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, the author of 10 books. But before all of that, he was a wayward 20-something devoting his life to a sport that few knew anything about and even fewer understood. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stefan. All right, before we get to personal matters, I think the name Ultimate is actually crucial to the entire gestalt of the game, the very creation Uh. of the first team (laughs) at a high school in New Jersey in 1968 was intended as a goof, but the goof took off and the spirit of goofiness of not taking sports or this sport too seriously pervaded those early days, drinking before and during games, drinking a lot after games. It dominated the subculture of Ultimate when you started playing at Harvard in the late 1970s. Yeah, but if it had just been called Field Disc, if Joel Silver, the inventor, had called it Field Disc, it'd probably be we'd be watching the national finals on real TV, not ESPNU or whatever we watched it on the other day. And it just feels like we've been, you know, how many times have I answered, is that the thing you do with dogs? You know, and the modern equivalent now is you tell people what you do, you tell them you play ultimate, and they say, oh, yeah, we have a course near our house. Um, and you say, no, no, it's not Frisbee golf. It's this running sport. And they say, no, we have a course near our house. And you can't convince them no matter what that it's not Frisbee golf. So it's always been this kind of Rodney Dangerfield sort of thing where you're explaining to people what you do. And uh, I guess I guess there's something positive about that. As I say in the book, you build up muscles of nonconformity because you're used to throwing yourself into something that others consider ridiculous. Well, you've, you've clearly thought a lot about this, but I'm still going to push back on the idea that the name is the crucial factor here. Isn't right. the idea um, that this is a game played with a child's toy, isn't that what the issue is? It's like if there was a sport right. devoted to hula hoops. <laughs> or tiddlywinks. <laughs> and you get that all the time. The, the counterbalancing factor, though, is people who haven't played it 
and roll their eyes at it. But once they start running around, they start to kind of get it. And I think that's because of the physics of the thing, the way a disc hovers, the way a ball doesn't. If you look at those ESPN like top 10 plays, so many of them are outfield plays, like diving outfield plays. And Ultimate has that, except you're di- you, you've got diving from much farther away and the disc is kind of waiting for you. And it also hovers up there. I just love to see LeBron, you know, uh, go up and snack, snatch it out of the air at like 11, 12 feet. So there's there's stuff that's inherently cool about it that you feel when you're playing it. And then you go back and you're kind of sheepish when you're telling people what you're spending all your time doing. You know, and that sheepishness certainly pervades your memoir. There's this steady (laughs) discomfort in the book about having devoted so much of yourself to Ultimate. On the one hand, you write that Ultimate is pure because it offered none of the traditional rewards of cash or larger fame. On the other hand, you couldn't totally square what you were doing with the absence of those goals or rewards, this feeling that you were wasting your time. But there are a lot of ways to piss away your 20s. This at yeah, least yeah. seems to me like it was a focused one. So why yeah. the ambivalence? Or is that just being 25? I think so. And I think I have, you know, I say in the book, I talk about my dad a lot, who was a super judgmental guy and would say when I got a 98 on a test, what happened to the other two points? And I think I developed kind of a self-deprecating sense of humor as a defense against him, like, a, you know, uh, and that continued in my way of, of talking about the sport. But also, I think it happened because I was also trying to become a writer, but it was unpublished and didn't know any other writers, trying to become a political cartoonist and having little success. So I picked three things that were uh, long shot, strange things. So I was kind of always on the defensive. I had some friends who played Ultimate who had, quote unquote, normal jobs, good jobs. And then Ultimate was there you know, put on their superhero cape and go away for the weekend and get their get their yayas out. And then they'd go back to their jobs. Um, I would go back to my, I don't know what, like mulling about the great novel I was going to write. So it was overall, you know, I, I used the Kenneth Koch poem to my 20s, where he says, 20s, I'd run back to you right now if I could. And I feel the same way, but I'd like to have my current brain or maybe my 40-year-old brain uh, when I went running back because you know, I was kind of a mess for sure. What were the types of people that were drawn to this sport in the 60s uh-huh. and 70s? And how has that changed um, in the last, you know, 30, 10, five years? Well, I think it started to change when I played. And I, I kind of came in right when Reagan came into power. And you went from like, I played barefoot my first year at Harvard. And by the time I left, nobody was playing barefoot. If you were playing barefoot, somebody would cleat you and get, you know, you'd be bleeding. Um, and winning became more and more important. And then people started to do this unheard of thing called training. And then the, it, better athletes kind of supplanted lesser athletes and it got more and more serious. And then there was this whole counter crowd of really geeky administrators that I always made fun of. They were called the UPA the Ultimate Players Association, and I got in all these clashes with them. But now that I think back, we wouldn't have gone anywhere without those geeky guys. But they were just into the whole, we're creating this thing versus actually playing and diving and jumping. You were actually banned from playing Ultimate Frisbee in in Washington, D.C. and still are, right? Yes, I'm I'm proud of that. It's one of my great achievements in the sport. I was in the national semifinals and lost. And the team that I lost to was the my New York rival. 
and they were playing and winning in the finals. So I decided to get a little band of my teammates and rush the microphone and grab it just so I could sing We Are the Champions to the, you know, the New York team, serenade them. And the these UPA guys pushed back and they got a cop in and we wrestled and broke the microphone. And then I got a letter banning me that said, I know him only as Gessner. Uh, you won't be surprised to know that Gessner was inebriated at the time of the incident. I'm sure he will greet this with howls of arrogant laughter. So, of course, I got the letter and went over to my teammates and we read it and howled with arrogant laughter. <laughs> I ultimately so, started getting some attention around that time, the 1980s. There was this 15-minute TV documentary in 1985, which summed up the popular view of the sport. Let us listen to a short clip. Hello, I'm George Plimpton. Like everyone else, I thought Frisbee was just a game of catch played by two or more people in a park or at the beach. But for several thousand athletes around the world, ultimate Frisbee is a demanding full-time sport of non-stop running, accurate throwing, and all-out diving to catch that plastic disc. It still amazes me that Plimpton did any of those participatory <laughs> journalism things. Now, there's yeah. a pro league now. Wait, how much of the 15 minutes was George Plimpton just talking? <laughs> a lot of well, it. The first five minutes is George Plimpton in his brownstone <laughs> reading the long introduction about Frisbee and its history. Seems like a good use well, of time. During the audio book, I, I got to a quote about, about uh, slaughtering your enemy and taking their women from Arnold. So I started to do it in the Schwarzenegger voice. And then I got to um, Howard Cosell and did a little Cosell. So they got me to Plimpton and I had to try to do that, you know, whatever that weird mix is of Brahmin and New York and English, you know, and he's he's the perfect guy to talk about Frisbee because he's chuckling a little at the whole concept of it the whole time. Right. Um, so. <laughs> and, and the difference between then and now, David, is look, there's a pro league now. I talked about it on, on the podcast recently. Thousands of college kids play. The games are on ESPN. This Back wasn't then, a, George Plimpton was talking about it. Now, Stefan Fatsis is talking, talking about it. <laughs> exactly. There, We've come a long way. It was not a straight line to get here, though, right? Um, no, there's conflict no. within the sport about no. whether this is a good thing. I mean, you tell a hilarious story in the book about Jose Cuervo's interest yeah. in sponsoring <laughs> Ultimate in the 1980s. I mean, what do you think has been gained and lost in the mainstreaming of Ultimate? Well, I'll, I'll, let me back up and tell a little bit of that Cuervo because it's it's too good not to tell. Um, they had just made beach volleyball big. You know, they'd taken a sport that people really didn't want to watch and gotten it on TV and made it popular. And they came to us and they set up these tournaments and they didn't really ask much of us. They asked us to wear numbered shirts. And in Ultimate, a lot of times when it first started, there was one really serious team, Rutgers, that wore numbers. So the Tufts team to mock them were all threes. Everybody on the team wore threes. And so they asked us to wear numbers. They asked us to you know, behave properly and, uh, and nobody did it. Nobody would take it seriously. People were smoking joints and drinking on the sidelines. Then Jose Cuervo threw a party where they gave away, this is a brilliant idea on their part, an hour's worth of free tequila. Well, at the end of the hour, you know, wait a second, players, wait a second. <laughs> Alcohol is not usually given away in denominations of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, for good it, reason. An hour was enough to build up a, a nice head for us. And people crawled over the bars and started to grab tequila. And, uh, and they concluded we weren't ready for prime time. And D. Rambeau, who was the sponsor, said, if you can't sell a, uh, a sport to a tequila, the sport to a tequila company, who can you sell it to? 
So we've always had this kind of need to be more recognized and real and this regressive enjoyment of wildly undermining that effort. So when you watch these pro games now and they have refs and all that whatnot, do you have this feeling of keep ultimate weird and refs just aren't weird enough? And what what hath uh, professionalization rot? Well, my first thought is I could still be great. But after I get over that <laughs> and realize it's not true, um, I think it's really clean and antiseptic. I, I went to nationals and they had these little boutiques with, you know, little frisbees and shirts and, and people aren't, we used to be like right on the sideline watching and drinking and heckling. And now they're back in stands, but there still aren't that many fans. You know, it's still a lot of, at least at the club games, it's a lot of, uh, the players watching now at the pro games, they're really building some momentum and uh, people are coming out to see it. And I, I have a belief I could be wrong, but you know, I don't know if it's going to take 10, a hundred, but I think it's going to catch on. And again, I think it's going to catch on because of the moments, the skying going up for the disc, the diving, like that's why I first liked the NBA, you know, when I was a kid and, and I think it's there that part, but we'll see. David Gessner is the author of Ultimate Glory, Frisbee, Obsession, and My Wild Youth. David, may our passes be linked as our arms are now. Oh, a tear comes to my eye when I, eyes when I hear that. <laughs> the hostage motto. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for Afterballs. And Stefan, are you familiar with the concept of the Callahan? No. In Ultimate, it is one of the rarest plays. It's when you intercept... Um, your opponent's throw in the opponent's end zone. It's essentially the equivalent of a safety. Yeah. So it's one point, um, and it's named after this guy, Henry Callahan. I knew about the Callahan, but I didn't know that Henry Callahan, he was an ultimate player. Um, he died in 1982. He was murdered, actually. And so the, there's the Callahan Award, which is given to the best college players. There's this play in the the game that's named after him. They're also the Callahan rules of ultimate. So this is a very uh, important figure in the early days of ultimate Frisbee. Henry Callahan, we salute you. Stefan, what is your Callahan? Well, news of the McGregor-Mayweather fight has had writers searching for cross-sport pugilistic comparisons. And one that's been frequently mentioned is Muhammad Ali fighting Antonio Inoki. It's a good comparison, Josh. Inoki was 
right? Actually, it's a terrible comparison. Inoki was a professional wrestler in Japan. Unlike most Japanese pro wrestlers, he didn't come out of the ranks of judo or sumo. He spent his high school years in Brazil. He was a shot putter. He got into pro wrestling in Japan at age 17, though he did fight against boxers, judoka, karateka, and other martial artists. And he may have picked up a few moves along the way. I did an afterball about Inoki a couple of years ago about him wrestling Ric Flair in North Korea in 1995. Ali was at that event, probably because of the lifelong friendship that he and Inoki developed after their bizarre fight in June 1976 at the Budokan Theater in Tokyo. Live at the Budokan. The fight has received plenty of attention over the years, but it is hard to understate what a farce it truly was. My former colleague, Jonathan Eig, has a new biography of Ali coming out in the fall, Ali, A Life. Uh, in it, Eig writes that Ali's finances had been so badly damaged over the course of his career, and he had so many people living off of his earnings that as he neared the end, he was 34 in 1976, he was pushed to take almost any payday. His manager, Herbert Muhammad, came up with the idea to fight Inoki. Japanese promoters promised Ali $6 million to do it. Here's a clip from the pre-fight news conference. Or if the world's greatest fighter meets the world's greatest martial art, Krasala. <laughs> and you should see everything that's going to be packed. They'll be lined up. $100, $200, $300. <laughs> That was at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, where Ali, as you could tell, was doing his best Ali. Now, I'm going to play a longer clip because it is a reminder that Ali's speechifying was not always inspired or profound. Man desires to understand that which he cannot understand. He likes to be mystified. Tell him that Count Dracula meets the Wolfman on Hara Mountain. The line will be 50 miles long. Tell him that there's some shark named Jaws eating people up. Outsell all the movies. First man wanted to go to the moon. For years, he won us on the moon. He went back and paid $10 billion for two rocks. Came back. Now he don't give a damn about the moon. Now he wants to go on Mars. Man wants to go up. He always wants to seek in knowledge. This happens from infancy. Little babies always trying to walk before the time. They love to see blood in this civilization. They like to go to watch a car race, wanting to see it, not wanting to see somebody get killed. They love. Now the, they will be mystified. And now they will all be waiting. Can you interpret such knowledge? <laughs> Ali also entertained the media with the racially tinged attacks on Joe Frazier and, in this instance, also George Foreman, the degraded Frazier, and Ali himself for years. As you listen, picture Ali scrunching up his face, sticking out his lips, and flattening his nose with a finger. Most boxers can't talk. Joe Frazier, George Foreman, if they were here... Are you going to go shape like that? I'm not going to go shape like that. 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 I'm not going to go shape like that.
Ali thought the fight against Inoki would be staged like pro wrestling. Inoki wanted to fight. The agreed upon rules barred Inoki from throwing, grappling, or tackling Ali, and he could only kick Ali if he had one knee on the mat. At the opening bell, Inoki races forward, slides to the mat, and tries to kick Ali. It goes on like that for 15 rounds. Inoki on his back, swinging a leg, occasionally catching Ali on the shin, calf, or thigh. Ali dancing, shaking his ass, motioning at Inoki to get up, wondering what the fuck he had gotten himself into. Listen to Ali here after the third round. In 15 rounds, Ali would throw six punches, connecting on two. A short Japanese documentary about the fight on YouTube uses some swelling music to try to make one of the punches, which pretty much grazed Inoki's head, into this super dramatic moment. The match was declared a draw. The Japan Times wrote the next day. The celebrated bout of the century turned out to be the ripoff of the century. It proved once again that when an apple fights an orange, the results can only be a fruit salad. Once again, it proves it once again. Ali suffered blood clots from the kicks that later caused him serious problems. Inoki became a member of the Japanese parliament. And the Budokan Theater redeemed itself with the 1979 live album, Cheap Trick at Budokan. Instead of watching Ali Inoki, Josh, I would recommend instead Chuck Wepner versus Andre the Giant. That fight was the undercard to Ali Inoki. It was in Shea Stadium. The whole thing was a pay-per-view scam, of course. It is some really weird shit. At 450 pounds, Andre the Giant weighed almost twice as much as Chuck Wepner. Spoiler alert. In round three, Andre the Giant picks up Wepner and dumps him out of the ring. But stay for the JVC commercial between <laughs> rounds two and three. That's pretty great. Josh, what's your Callahan? As of Saturday, Steve Scalise's condition had been upgraded from critical to serious. After the Republican congressman underwent additional surgery, Scalise was among several people who were shot on June 14th at a practice for the congressional baseball game. Um, they were shot by a gunman who was eventually killed by police. The game itself was played the next day at Nationals Park with the Democrats winning 11-2, to the eighth time in nine years that the Dems have earned a victory after Republicans had won 11 of the previous 12. Um, there was no question about um, the fact that the game was going to be played. Um, it has been played going back to 1909. But there were other periods in the history of the congressional baseball game um, where there was a hiatus of a few years, the most recent of which came from 1958 to 1961 um, in a history that's uh, published on uh, a government website about the history of the congressional baseball game. It's noted that House Speaker Sam Rayburn of Texas was the one who stopped the game from being played in 1958, contending that the game should be discontinued because it had become too physical. So I looked this up. What does that mean, too physical? It could mean that, um, you know, guys were brushing each other back, you know, ramming into each other at home plate. Um, in an article published in the New York Times in 58, there's a quote from the Capitol physician, George Calver, which says, it would be foolish for congressmen to flirt with coronary thrombosis, 
while the town still has the Washington senators to supply laughter at the ballpark. You know, timely Washington senators are bad humor. Mm -hmm. Even the Capitol physician. Timely thrombosis humor, too. So I looked at the 1957 game to see what what might have occurred then to, uh, you know, give people the idea that it was too physical or uh, too much coronary thrombosis might be induced. So the game at that point was sponsored by the Washington Evening Star. It was um, a fundraiser, just as today's game is um, back then. It was to send kids from the District of Columbia to summer camp. And I found this confusing, Stefan, um, the statement about um, what your money would go to if you bought a ticket to the game is, the satisfaction of knowing that children who need but cannot afford a short vacation in a camp will have one where fresh air, excellent wool, well-protected swimming, and other recreational activities will help build strong bodies and healthy mental attitudes. Excellent wool. I wonder if it's that merino <laughs> wool from Australia. Anyway, um, another strange highlight from that game is, um, and this is from a preview story from the Washington Star, there will be several combats between model plane flyers whose control line planes are equipped with crepe paper tails which trail out behind. The object is to maneuver the planes so that it becomes possible to cut off pieces of the trailing paper with the propeller. Great skill is demonstrated in this exciting sport by the operators in avoiding crashes or tangling of the control lines while the planes are making speeds of approximately 80 miles an hour around a circle. That sounds extremely complicated. And not particularly pleasing to the eye, Mm -hmm. but what do I know? This was the 1950s. All right, so the game happens. Uh, The Washington Star claimed that the 1957 game was attended by 2,000 people. A uh, neutral news service said that there was a disappointing crowd of only about 300 persons attending the game, so perhaps some inflation from the sponsors at the Washington Star. So um, I'm going to read you the description from the star of the first inning of the game. And maybe this will give you a sense of uh, why it was discontinued. Ayers grounded to Jones. Collier was spared when McCarthy fell down, chasing one pot foul. And again, when Clark fell over a photographer, pursuing another, then walked. Broomfield was dusted off by Udall. Then he too walked. May grounded to Jones, who bobbled the ball for one error and threw it into right field for another, scoring Collier. A doctor examined May as he stood puffing on second, but pronounced him able to continue after his long run to second base. Alger walked, filling the bases. Ford, this is Gerald Ford, hit a well-inside-the-park home run, scoring everybody when Rivers's throw to the plate ate up the clock. Curtis was safe when McCarthy got lost under his pop fly. Darunian singled off Jones's shoulder blade. Tolufson was safe when no Democrat snared his lofty pop-up. Ayers at bat for the second time tripled to left, but was out at the plate on a throw relayed by five Democrats. Collier bunted, fell down, but made it to first <laughs> safely when Adonisio was unable to pick up the ball and then threw it eagerly into the Democratic dugout. Broomfield popped to Udall. Eight runs. Wait, wait, wait. This was just the top of the first <laughs> inning. Wait, wait. The throw to the, the the hit to the outfield was relayed by five Democrats. Yeah, and so they threw out a, this Did guy. They have to like form a committee. They threw out this guy Ayers, who had tripled to left, but was out at the plate after the the three person relay. So you're wondering if if a relay would take five people, you probably shouldn't be able to throw uh, throw the dude out at home. So what happened was. And this was revealed later in an article in the Akron Beacon Journal that William Haynes Ayers 
of Ohio actually fell down and broke his hand before getting uh, thrown out the plate. Um, Here's the story from the Beacon Journal. Congressman playing for the Republicans in the annual congressional baseball game tried to stretch a triple into a home run. He fell rounding third. Later, it was learned that he had broken a bone in the same hand he'd injured three years ago in the press politicians ball game at Firestone Stadium. At Bethesda Naval Hospital, Ayers gave his baseball shoes to the attendant who put a cast on his hand and arm. I'm through, said Ayers. My eyes are as good as ever but my legs are giving out for the next few weeks. The congressman's letters will be signed by someone else. But that's not all. Four years later, in a story in the Washington Post about the game coming back, mentioned that John Saylor had ruptured his appendix in the game. This is all in the same 1957 game. That I don't know if that is actually possible. But, and also another guy named Thomas Curtis of Missouri shattered his collarbone. Wow. It's like the Hindenburg of congressional <laughs> baseball games. Um, the uh, Democrats ended up winning that game 10-9 to 9, despite giving up eight runs in the first inning. And a, it was a, and a, and a burst appendix. It was a uh, comeback for the ages. That is our show for this week. Our producer is Patrick Fort, and our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Trump Care Tracker, in which Jim Newell and Jordan Weissman discuss the legislative journey of the Republican health care bill. It's a new podcast. It's coming out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, short conversations about what's going on on the Hill and what to expect from the health care bill. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.